We got a question about the ball, the ring, and the club, about why juggling has those three objects as the main things that we use today. And I know you work a lot, again, with the history of juggling. Maybe you can explain a little bit about how that came to be, the ball, the ring, and the club. Why is it those three things, or how did those evolve? Right. I think there's a couple of things to uh, remember when we talk about balls, clubs, and rings. And that is that those objects as what they are in terms of the object that they are, but also the things, the techniques that we do as jugglers. Because if we're going to talk about a standard, we can look at, let's say, rings. Uh, and that's going to be very similar to how you juggle, let's say, plates. And if you look at plates, they've been around for a long time, but you did not necessarily do the same thing with the plate 200 years ago as a plate when Rastelli juggled with it. So I think that uh, if we go back to circa 1900 when the so-called gentlemen jugglers were around, so these are so gentlemen juggling, you could say is juggling with everyday objects such as hats, cigars, uh, umbrellas, rolled up newspaper, rolled up ball of gloves, etc. So one of the objects that a gentleman juggler would use would be a plate. But a gentleman juggler also used a ball and maybe an umbrella or a cane. So we kind of have the ball club and ring as in some kind of proto stage. Yeah, like a primitive form of those. Exactly. Objects, yeah. Like we have the, the primitive form of the ring is the plate. Mm. The primitive form of the ball, well, ball, but also like rolled up ball of gloves or an apple or something like that. You could find several objects that could be considered proto balls in terms of modern juggling. And then you have the club. So you could find uh, proto versions of the club in a cane, an umbrella, a stick, uh, a sword, knife, etc. So um, in terms of the techniques of balls, clubs, like toss juggling technique that we would see today and recognize as standard juggling, I think that has been around for a long time. It was just that it was not necessarily the standard back in the gentleman juggling days. Uh, those jugglers, so we're talking about Cinque Valli, Salerno, Michael Cara, for them balancing was very central. So a lot of the tricks were balance based. A lot of the tricks were kind of like, how should I say, one-off based. So you would, for example, you'd have an, an umbrella and on the umbrella you would place a hat, a cigar and a coin and you'd flip everything into the air and you'd catch, you know, the hat on your head, cigar in your mouth and the coin in your eye socket. So it's like this one. Yeah, it's one moment. It's not a repeating pattern. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so, so you can recognize those objects, uh, some of those objects as uh, proto versions of the balls, clubs and rings. So we're going to try to get from that moment 
to the situation we're in now where we have balls clubs and rings as a standard but we also have kind of a standard of the techniques that we use with those three objects yeah i mean i have a million questions already but maybe i'll let you keep going if you you can draw a line there maybe that'll answer a bunch of my questions already right so i think the first the, the change that we need to look at specifically is uh the change between the era of Cinque Valli and the era of Rastelli. So Cinque Valli, he had his big breakthrough in 1885. And he's very much the first juggler to make famous juggling that is skill-based and practice-based. And it's done with objects that we all recognize, like hats, cigars, and coins. But he's not the inventor of that genre really so you look at the jugglers before Cinque Valley a lot of them were uh, either from Asia or Asian uh, imitators so they would use what for a European might seem like exotic objects or objects that we don't really recognize in our everyday lives like a Diablo or a you know a devil stick flower stick or a lot of the objects from the japanese repertoire like the those drumsticks that they use etc so you had jugglers like that before cinque valley the asian type but you also had jugglers like august uh, trui and uh, alexandrini and they would use they, they, somewhere there, we're talking Paris, 1870s, somewhere around there, this everyday object juggling starts to become established. The change that happens with Cinque Valley is he becomes world famous. And there was nobody that had been famous to that degree before Cinque Valley. So it's really, if Cinque Valley didn't invent this genre of juggling that is skill and practice based with everyday objects, he's certainly the person that kind of hammers the nail into the coffin that this is now a thing. We all know that this is a thing. This is a, a, a genre of performing that you take for granted and you can become a juggler now and you do only these things. You don't need to be on a horse. You don't need to do acrobatics or anything in addition to it. This is a carved out uh, performance genre of its own. But do you have do you know anything more about that transition from the Asian set of maybe more exotic objects to the more everyday objects in the Yeah, I think it's in a way it's the same uh, you'll you'll see this mechanism a lot in the history of juggling and the mechanism is that you have a novelty something that is new in the in the entertainment world of Europe specifically or Europe and the US and then when that thing is new it's a sensation but after a while takes a decade or two you know we're now used to it then the entertainment world starts to look for something else mm. and it's the same thing one might wonder about the restaurant troops and the, a lot of the troops that came from Asia were also, they were troops, not individuals. But after a while, troops disappeared. And what do you mean by the restaurant troops? Just to, the, the, I'm, What I mean is that restaurant jugglers also use everyday objects, but they're a group of people and they're in a big restaurant setting. And after a while, that disappears and you only have singular gentleman jugglers. So you're in the restaurant setting and you're throwing the plates and the knives and the menu and the... Exactly, exactly. Okay. But when the novel novelty of that dies out 
the entertainment world are no longer willing to pay for a troupe with a big set. Mm. So therefore, it's much more uh, makes much more sense to uh, hire an individual, and maybe that individual is making some kind of uh, new invention in some other aspect of that. They're exploring higher technique than, let's say, the restaurant jugglers were, or they have new gadgets, new like the Cara box, the Salerno ring. So somebody makes kind of an innovation that gets that causes a bit of a sensation, so everybody copies that style. Exactly. And then that just kind of kills that novelty. Exactly. Yeah. So then somebody else has to come out and break away from that. Totally. Yeah, totally. Okay. So, so yeah. So I think that the shift between Asian juggling and and uh, the gentleman juggling, I mean, it's it's difficult to pinpoint exactly what that shift is. But from the perspective that I see it, if I would bet my money on something, I would bet it. To the, a large degree on novelty you had the asian troops bringing people in from asia when the novelty of that died maybe it, it, you start looking for something else the people that booked the shows that uh, pro, uh, programmed in the theaters oh then there's this new thing so they had to innovate because yeah just got old okay i mean right now a lot of like kind of everything you're saying is around this professional setting of performing, I guess, getting paid for performing, um, which I know you're going to draw a line from where you are right now until, I guess, present day, or at least until these ball rings and clubs objects were established as kind of the normal thing to do. But I just recognize one big difference is that today we have a whole, you know, sector of juggling that has nothing to do with performing or getting paid for it. And so then in terms of novelty, I mean, we'll get there, but it's kind of a fun journey i don't know where you're going with this but right i mean at that point i think juggling existed very much in the professional sphere it was something you did as a performance profess uh, professional i it's hard to say exactly what if there was a hobby world back then you often hear like around like the creation of the the international jugglers association in the 40s 1940s there there exists some correspondence between Europe and the US and the Europeans will write to the Americans and say oh in Europe we don't have hobbyists everybody's a professional here but like they came to understand that in in the US there was this new association that also hobbyist people were uh, engaged in not just the professionals but there are there's other there's other traces of, of kind of hobby juggling that are kind of fun uh, they, there was just a new book that came out from um, an Australian uh, historian her name is uh, Leanne Richards and uh, she writes about this story of when Cinque Valley toured in Australia and made a big uh, impact there and a lot of the children there they started to try juggling and there's this specific story about children who started to juggle with coins and one uh, one kid he came up with this idea to catch the coins in his mouth and and uh, of course you 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 all uh, suspect where this is heading what one day of course he accidentally swallowed one of the coins and uh, he had to go to the doctor and there was this whole ordeal there. But apparently the kid was, uh, <laughs> he was always happy throughout the whole thing because he felt like it was a good thing that he always had money on him. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> but I mean, I mean, it makes sense if, if you know, just our, our document of past time, uh, you know, if you're a performer, you're going to have maybe a photo of your performance because you need to advertise or market, or you can have a newspaper review or some sort of documentation that you performed. But yeah, if you're a hobbyist in your backyard, just juggling for fun, maybe it's a little bit harder to have a trace of that now in modern times, back from that time. But Yeah, that's the other thing about the trace, because professional people, you will have a trace in terms of advertisements, maybe the occasional interview, promo photos, but the hobby culture of, let's say, 1890s, what trace of that would we have? I mean, we have, we do have trace of, you know, children whacking the hoops down the street. Yeah, you hit the hoop with a stick. Exactly. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, you're getting sure. close to something there. Sure. So I feel like children have always, you know, entertained That's in terms themselves. of a toy, though. That's more of a toy. Right, so yeah, but where's the limit when it actually goes into yeah. something that you could, you know, recognize as juggling? Sure. It, it's hard to say, but... Uh, sure. Okay, well, so now we got the, the gentleman juggling with the everyday objects, so how is this going to... And, and we, have the, we have the prototypes of the modern props, but like, right. how did that yeah. go? So we're in gentleman juggling, we have these everyday objects, some of those objects we could see as proto-versions of the later standard. Uh, and then when... There's a couple of changes, so Cinque Valim is really the person that makes this uh, type of juggling pro, uh, famous. After Cinque Valli, you have a whole plethora of others that copy his style, imitate him, develop what he did, come up with their own things in the line of that, etc. But towards the end of Cinque Valli's career, we're talking 1914, he starts to complain that audiences now want to be amused they want the juggler to be funny so either you have to have a bunch of jokes in your act or you have to employ a, f a comedian as your assistant huh. so he kind of complains a little bit about that which is ironic because he was one of the first that was really successful to hire a comedic assistant uh, a man called walter burford would you think that's where that trend came from then that kind of came back to it's very possible. Uh, he specifically mentions tramp juggling, that that uh, starts happening in the US. And, uh, and you can you know see that, you can also actually see that in other, that same uh, persona, you can see it appearing in other places, not just juggling. I mean, you have people like Laurel and Hardy, Charlie Chaplin, uh, W.C. Fields later on in his uh, film career. It is that comedian, tramp, uh, mm. alcoholic looking person. It's a little bit like I have a little bit hard time to relate to that era. Now, it seems to me like when I look at those old films that the funniest thing you could ever do was to be this uh, homeless person who kicks a mm. police officer in the butt, you know? Yeah. <laughs> That's like the peak of comedy back then. And it's it's yeah it's it's a little bit hard to well some sort uh, of commentary to. on classism or some sort of status of yeah maybe yeah you're, you're, yeah i don't know you're getting back at the authorities or you're fighting authority or something that something was, yeah 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 anyways so that's where we so we start moving away from gentlemen juggling to some kind of more comical um yeah 
style comical style but then in the 1920s comes the big change which is Enrico Rastelli and what he did was that he uh, he just pushed the technical specificity of juggling to a whole new uh, realm because the jugglers the gentleman jugglers a lot of several of them had very difficult tricks they were just like you know you could have one trick where you, you know salerno is showering balls through a, a, a ring with a with another ball rotating in it it's a difficult trick but it's hard to compare really to let's say a cara box where you have this um case with leaning shells ramps, yeah, ramps the ball rolls down. uh balanced on your forehead and you're throwing the balls in there like uh, they're similar but you can't compare those two tricks like you can compare I'm juggling nine balls and you're juggling ten. Right. So well, I, you're clearly the better juggler. Better, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. Whereas Salerno and Cara, like how are we going to compare them really if that's the game we want to play? Yeah. It's more difficult. So Cinque Valle, eh, sorry, Rastelli, he really established uh, that, that thing of numbers juggling. He took balls, plates, and sticks. And the game was to juggle, to toss juggle as many as possible. Hmm. And that's what he mastered. Hmm. So, there, so there is the change from the previous styles. And after Rastelli, of course, everyone tried to imitate him. Okay. So he, he also got obviously very famous. So then that started to be the thing to copy. Exactly. Yeah. So he became very famous with that. And quite soon people realized that, hey, if we carve out the center of this plate, we get a ring that's easier to grasp. It's easier to hold and release several of them from your hands. I don't know if you've ever tried to release yeah, I've, I've tried you know, plates. three, four plates totally. from your hands. It's much more difficult than it is. A lot more strength. And, yeah. Right, yeah. And I believe, I don't think Rastelli released more than three plates from each mm. hand. Mm. Already doing eight plates, he started working with holsters and holding a plate in his teeth, mm. etc. So he already started to kind of bonk his head against some kind of barrier there in terms of how many of these objects can you hold in your hands. But yeah, he. Do you, do you know anything about the kind of balls he used? I unfortunately I don't really know too much. I've seen pictures of them. They look like tightly packed bean bags yeah and i guess i'm talking more specifically about you know doing higher numbers of balls because we, you've seen all the photos of him using the the bigger inflatable style of balls or even soccer balls or yeah fo footballs for different kinds of balancing work yeah but i guess we're talking about higher numbers of toss juggling yeah 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 i don't know i i wish i knew exactly what type of ball he he used i've just seen pictures of them laying in cabinets they could be they could be tightly packed bean bags they could be wooden balls they could be um, tennis balls maybe there's an account of him using I, i'm not sure quite sure at this moment and he's using so plates and then some sort of ball uh and then for the clubs we had sticks yes had sticks because restelli he had taken not the techniques, but the aesthetics of uh, a Japanese juggler called Takashima. And Takashima used these uh, Japanese drumsticks from Taiko drumming. So it's a stick with a larger head. And they function pretty much like clubs would do. 
so that's what that that's what Restelli uh, did use. I mean, okay, I see what you're saying so far. I guess the one missing links that maybe you know or don't know or nobody knows is why did Restelli kind of pursue that style with those objects? I mean, it, you know, here he is copying this uh, Japanese style juggler, but then he's doing this numbers toss juggling with the objects instead of the other techniques. Yeah, I wonder why he pursued that. I know that his father, uh, Alberto Restelli, uh, he uh, he was, it says in, in Karl Heinz books that he was a failed uh, gentleman juggler. Hmm. And there's pictures of him where he looks like a, a Cinque Valli imitation type uh, juggler with the, yeah, you know, that acrobatics uh, tricot and the, the shorts on top of it. And, mm. So there's pictures of him like that. And uh, and the, he supposedly he forbade Enrico to practice juggling. He wanted him to be an aerial acrobat. But so Enrico had to practice in secret. Mm-hmm. And they had okay. seen they had seen Takashima because they worked in Russia. Uh, the Restelli family uh, worked in Russia and they had seen this juggler Takashima there. So supposedly that's where Enrico, th- that's what inspired him and that's the, the objects that he wanted to use. Who knows how he got those sticks? That's kind of interesting because it, it says that the account is that the first trick that he shows his father is to juggle uh, those sticks. Hmm. So I don't know. Maybe, maybe he must have gotten some from somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, the sticks that Rosselli had. Did they have the little end on the on the, on the end, like the taiko drum thing? Yes. They did. Okay. Yeah, they did. But later on, they didn't. I mean, the stuff I'm familiar with is he's just had straight sticks. No. No. They they always really? had they the always little cup that? at the end. Ah, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. I mean, my my favorite Rosselli story is. Uh, is about you know Oscar Schlimmer in the Bauhaus that Oscar Schlimmer had his troupe of uh, dancers for the Bauhaus and his dancers they would do ballet every day from 8 to 12 in the morning I mean 365 days a year and then towards the end of the Bauhaus he happened to go see uh, Ristelli perform and he was so uh, Oscar was so impressed with the juggling and, and Ristelli's artistry that he immediately went to his dancers and said you will stop doing ballet every morning and you will start doing juggling. And they practiced for the next two or three years every morning with the same intensity from eight to 12 every day, but they did juggle, uh, juggling. And Rostelli actually came in and worked with his troupe uh, to teach them the, the practice technique. And then he, Rostelli kept touring, but Oscar kept the practice in his company. It's pretty crazy. Yeah, that would be lovely to know what they did and what objects they had and what those training sessions looked like. I mean, the crazy thing is I, I'm such a fan of Oscar Slimmer's work. And before I'd heard this story about Rostelli, I always looked at it and I was like, man, there's something about juggling with this. The way he organizes objects with the dancers and makes these pictures with the objects and kind of a graphical display. And he was very conscious of the visuals of the objects, obviously. Um, and for me, there was some choreography that was like, man, that is something to do with juggling. <laughs> I don't know. And then I heard the story about Ristelli and I was like, oh, so it wasn't just completely in my mind that there was some juggling inside the company somehow. Do you know if any of those choreographies that he created contain uh, throws and catches? No, but there's a couple of photos I found of um, Oscar Schlimmer dancers on stage um, with uh 
with different juggling objects like ring, um, not rings but balls and clubs I guess it was probably more when were the swinging clubs around when was that a thing that's around 1900 shift, okay so shift the maybe century. it could have been from that instead of Ristelli but I don't know you can definitely find and it's also hard to tell because Oscar Schlemmer's work has been recreated throughout the past you know 100 years or whatever it's been right and it's hard to tell which what's an original photo of his original troupe and what's been a restaging of the work later on and that includes maybe newer objects mm-hmm. right than that were originally used yeah 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 no but okay so let's let's um finish well, we, this trajectory well, we got from... Ristelli doing the the balls the plates and the sticks yeah um which is pretty close to the ball ring and club very close <laughs> so you have Rastelli doing those things and then you have a bunch of jugglers starting to imitate Rastelli and at least one of them perhaps several of them had the idea to cut out the center of the ring uh, so the center of the plate, plate yeah. to turn it into a ring which Rastelli actually used one ring but the, 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 <laughs> the ring that he used was to spin around his ankle so, so you can see pictures of Rastelli actually with one ring but wasn't he, that tricky the, the jump rope with the six plates in the ring on the right oh, yeah yeah for an example okay. there there's some antipodist tricks yeah he lays on his that, back and does the yeah where there's some rings involved so he had rings but for some reason he never but those rings were also maybe bigger than what we think of as the were they bigger like spinning rings I think that the ring that he spun around his ankle was not that big but his plates were also smaller than a standard juggling ring today yeah so yeah we would have to go in into those photos and look exactly at mm, the okay. you know comparison to to rings and, and plates but the, the as from my recollection the ring that he spun around his ankle wasn't that that okay. big of a thing okay. the, the rings that he spun when he used uh, when he was laying on his back doing the antipo uh, antipodist type work yeah those rings were a bit bigger i think yeah okay um, so but anyway so the, these uh restelli schooled jugglers let's call them some or, of them or copycats or copycats okay. or yeah yeah no because just to say Rastelli schooled I mean he wasn't really like yeah he didn't teach them no 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 but no. it was just imi- imitators, imitators in the same way that we've had yeah. that you've already established with Cinque Valley and right okay. I was being kind yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no so so those uh, th- there's some of them uh, that start to use rings one of them uh, is a juggler who is still alive today called Angelo Piccinelli so he, uh, I think it was his father who cut out uh, rings for him. So he started to use that. In Did he start with plates? Do you think? Do you know? Uh, is there pictures of Piccinelli with plates? I or feel his dad, like or? no. I think there there might be pictures of Piccinelli with plates too. Yeah, I'm not gonna. Sure. Yeah, but I, I think so. Hmm. Uh, and you said there had been some interview with Piccinelli that you yeah that where there's a firsthand account of him saying well. I didn't see anybody else do this before me. Correct. And I had this idea to cut out the center of the plate. Yeah. So for a long while, I thought that Pincinelli was the origin. And Carl Heinz said that Pincinelli was the origin. Carl Heinz Ethan. Carl Heinz Ethan, yeah. yes. And what, uh, year, what year would that be around? So around 19, mid-30s, I think. <laughs> so you're talking less than 100 years ago. Yeah. Okay. That's pretty crazy. Appro- approximately. Sure, sure. Approximately. Then. Right. Um, but then later on we have discovered pictures of other jugglers that use small flat 
edged rings but not terribly earlier than that or, no it's yeah. it's all around the same time maybe there was some zeitgeist of that in yeah the, in the air i feel if i'm going to be picky the change that i want to see because we have there there are pictures from from before Estelle even of of uh, rings that are flat but they're large so they're kind of more like hoops mm. so the change mm. that so i would, find sorry would they do with those larger kind of hoop things is it for toss juggling or more spinning on your arm or leg or i think some use them for toss juggling okay but uh, the the change that i find specifically interesting is the change to a small ring that has a flat uh, rim right. that you juggle fast and many. Mm. Okay. Because that's that is really the change. I mean the fast part and lots. I mean the fast part allows to have the numbers, exactly. the higher numbers exactly. of objects. Yeah, yeah. Because that is a change of techniques from let's say hoops, which you can juggle hoops, many of them, maybe six or seven, but you know it's it's do you know when was the whole bicycle rim juggling stuff rolling on the strings and stuff is that the same time or when's that that's no after. that's 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 long before long Estelle. before yeah okay. yeah according to carl heinz books carl heinz Seaton, again he claims the first one to use a hoop in a performance juggling performance was a clown called globston mm. and i think it's 1870s even yeah I mean, and, and do you happen to know with the bicycle rims, it was like rolling on the floor in patterns or yeah. was it, but also throwing in there? Maybe. Oh, so the first, the, the juggler to make that into an act and become really famous for it and make a lot of money on it was William Everhart. So we're talking circa 1895, I think he starts around, somewhere around there. I mean, it's kind of funny. You can kind of guess, or you can say, oh, bicycle hoops, they're big and they're round. That's like a, that's like a ring. It's got a hole in the middle. But yeah, somehow the evolution of that, uh, smooshing that down into a smaller thing when flattening the sides, it's way less likely than cutting out the center of a plate, maybe? Oh, yeah. Yes, yeah. Okay. I definitely think so, yeah. The, 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 the rings that we see from see today are definitely more the product of plate juggling than hoop juggling. Do you happen to have any idea that those rings that Pincinelli had, how big were they compared to the now the modern day uh, standard size ring. I think they were fairly simil similar. Hmm. The big difference between uh, that era of jugglers like Piccinelli and the people around him that started to use uh, rings, hmm. the big difference is that the rim is a little bit wider, hmm. generally speaking. Well, that, that's the next question I had, which is like, okay, they're not made of plastic. Yeah. And you're not cutting out the middle of a plate and having a ceramic ring so what what were they wood Did yeah they were wood yeah. they cut out wood and then used fabric uh, yeah. to cover to cover them okay so, or sometimes they're just painted yeah so they're mostly wood yeah okay uh, but the plastic it comes I don't have these dates in my head sure but I was surprised to find plastic rings mm. or uh, not wooden rings mm. proto-plastics I don't know these materials too uh -huh. well yeah. but like earlier than I thought yeah you're saying you found the plastic rings earlier than the mass-produced plastic rings of, yeah of like the 70s for example or whatever right okay yeah so yeah we'd have to look into exactly when those materials were discovered and you could have them available. I mean, it's kind of funny with with you mentioned briefly earlier Restelli using the big inflatable balls. Yeah. And like he was the first to do that really because also 
that's when that object was invented, you know, inflatable gotcha. rubber balls that okay. came around around that time. So, uh, and I, I would guess that plastic rings, it's going to be similar. You, you need to look when yeah. those materials started to become available to people. Totally. And that's also pretty soon after you're going to get someone yeah. making rings out of them. Yeah, gotcha. Okay, so that was balls and rings, how they came into existence the club we need to yeah. sort out too yeah so so we're at the point where Restelli is using the drumstick uh, objects for fast juggling and numbers juggling so numbers juggling many as you're trying to break the record of how many you can use so what happens as a parallel in the US is that uh, club club swinging is a popular form of uh, physical exercise, and somewhere around the somewhere around the time of 1880s, there's a juggler in the U.S. called DeWitt Cook mm. who who uh, starts juggling three uh, swinging clubs as part of these club swinging exhibitions because club swinging at that time you would travel around the country and if you were a champion and then you would beat the you will challenge the local champions that's how they made made money it's very similar to boxing actually boxing operated in a very similar way around that time the champion would travel around and then there would be contestants and people would pay to come see those fights and they would defend the title <laughs> so club swinging was the same and often in conjunction with these club swinging uh, championships, there would be an exhibition. Mm. And in those exhibitions, they could do things that perhaps wasn't the athletic, uh, you know, thing that they, it could be a aesthetical, something visual in the performance. And in those performances also, juggling started to appear with the clubs so we have the with cook juggling three then we have another guy called charles huey juggling four and uh eventually i think he's Sco scottish or british uh juggler called will hanwar the first to juggle five clubs and where's the shape of those club swinging clubs from the shape comes from um first you have a very bulky club that that comes from India that British soldiers see when they're in India and they add that to their physical uh, exercises. I mean, they're more like weights almost. Yes. Right? Yeah. They're, they're super heavy yeah. and you swing them for weightlifting. It's more like you have a big uh, cylinder of wood for yeah. weight yeah. and then to make it more manageable for your hand, you will whittle down a handle and then you probably put a little knob on the end so it doesn't fly out of your hand when you're moving them around to get stronger, right? Yeah, probably. So it's more like, it's more like, like lifting weights. It's kind of like a kettlebell in stick form. Exactly, yeah. 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 So that was a part of, now we're talking, now we're back to the 1830s, I think, when the British soldiers start doing that. And then they tr take that back to England and it becomes a popular form of physical exercise. And then in the 1860s, there's an American businessman who has specialized in athletic equipment and his name is uh, Simon D. Kehoe and he travels to the UK to um, get ins inspiration for athletic equipment and he sees a, an exhibition by a club swinger called Professor Harrison. 
And this exhibition inspires Simdi Kehoe to launch this type of exercise in the US. So he takes the invention of the club back to the US and he's the one who changes the shape of the club to look more like a mm -hmm. champagne type bottle, like a little bit more slimmer and oval in its, in the body's more oval. Prior to that, the, the, the body was more bulky and almost like, um, like a really bulky baseball bat looking mm -hmm. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas now it was like an oval shape in mm. the CMD Kehoe clubs. I see. So now we're in the 1860s when that changed, uh, when that uh, shape changes. Yeah. Um, so uh, that those looked very much like uh, the clubs that uh, DeWitt Cook would later juggle. It is unclear if DeWitt Cook used hollow clubs or not. I'm gonna guess the clubs were hollow because there existed uh, specific hollow clubs for exhibition. They're, they were uh, called exhibition clubs. Mm. So they would hollow out those heavy clubs in order to just demonstrate techniques or uh, try new things, let's say. Mm. So probably those jugglers that started DeWitt Cook, Charles uh, Huey, they were probably using hollowed out uh, exhibition uh, swinging clubs. I mean, and Charles Huey, the one doing four clubs. I mean, that's the famous story of stopping, right? Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, the story is that Charles Huey traveled with a very famous club swinging champion called Gus Hill. And in the Gus Hill's uh, adjacent performance, Charles Huey would juggle for clubs, but he did not know how to stop. So to fix that problem, Charles Huey would juggle the clubs and then they would just close the curtains and then he could drop behind the curtain. So that was the solution to, <laughs> to catching. Um, but, but anyway, so you have that. And then when juggling, of these Indian clubs starts to become more and more prominent. Eventually around 1895, you have your first club manufacturer in the US, a man called Edward Van Wyck. Uh, okay, yeah, so Van Wyck, he very much imitated what the swinging clubs looked like at that point, uh, but he had a new construction uh, I don't know if I should go into construction or we should, <laughs> I don't <laughs> no, know. That's all right. I mean, I, I'm so curious to know, I mean, now you're establishing this object, right? Yeah. But left off on the other story on Rastelli having sticks. Yeah. So we got to connect that up. That's what I want to. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to go my way. Maybe we should do a specific just club juggling episode sometime. So I think I'm going to table the construction for now. <laughs> uh, but okay, so you got the Edward Van Wyck clubs and uh, jugglers start using those and that is in the US where club passing is invented. Hmm. Um, and let's see, is it the Divine Brothers, I think is the first troop. Uh, you you can go, go into, if you're online, you can look up an article that's online called Juggling Firsts by uh, Tom Breen. If you Google that, you will find the article. And I, I believe that's the reference to the first juggling troupe that everybody's using today. So whether someone else did it, it's possible, but that's the reference. Yeah. So anyway, so you got club passing in, invented in, in the US. We're talking around 1890s, uh, 85, 90s. Supposedly the first troupe to get invited to Europe 
uh, are the Mac, uh, what's their name? <laughs> uh, their name slips me by now, but there was uh, troops start to appear in Europe. So when these American passing troops uh, perform in Europe, the Europe, European jugglers, you know, of course, they compare the objects to them and they see, okay, they're using these clubs in the same way as we're using sticks. But their object is much more visual. You, had, Edward Van Wyck was also the first to decorate the club with foil. Mm. So, you know, it looked great in the stage lights. Mm. So, of course, the European jugglers, they quite quickly mm-hmm. they realize that this is a better object for performing it's just more visual okay so they but they don't know how the clubs are constructed so they just take the stick and they expand the body okay. from the stick and we still see that same construction in clubs today right you have the stick the dowel in the center and then the body expands from the dowel mm-hmm and uh, but so was Rustelli around this time? No, he's after or well, no, it's all kind of at the same time. These uh, the troops actually come to Europe before Rustelli. Uh, they start coming, but it, it it all kind of goes. You it know, takes from, a while to evolve. I would say from nineteen hundred to nineteen forty. Yeah, there's a development from uh, from sticks to uh, to clubs in in Europe. So Rastelli never got the clubs. He never got the clubs. But he yeah. made doing high numbers of sticks popular or what? Yes. I mean, is that the thing? Yeah. He was so popular, but he was using sticks, but everybody wanted to be Rastelli. So then he didn't do the clubs. He didn't use clubs. But when clubs became available, then those ones who wanted to copy Rastelli, they thought, well, these clubs are better than the sticks. Yes. And you also, the, the other aspect that you have to bake into this is... Uh, the uh, Russian circus school. Okay. Because then you have a standardization of juggling in school format. What do you mean? And what year was that? And now we're talking 1927. Okay. And uh, so you start to have, you know, curriculum, literature, descriptions. You also start to have juggling literature, not, not just in Russia, but also in, in the US. And you start to have descriptions of, you know, how to make your clubs. Yeah. Okay. Uh, by yourself so gotcha. with measurements and materials yeah sure and then there's the development of clubs from there which i mean it's already established by that point so now we have the ball the ring and the club kind of established right yeah um and just to say you have a whole lecture on the history of clubs and how they developed and that's where a lot of this is coming from about the clubs right and yeah it's much deeper than this little <laughs> brief introduction to the totally trajectory. But, but, but to try to summarize it quickly you have Rastelli popularizing the ball, the stick, and the plate, and then that gradually shifts into a ball, plate, uh, ball, ring, and club. And then you have two other forces that are very important in this. It is the Russian uh, making juggling into a curriculum, and then you have the International Jugglers Association that has the literature and the newsletter and descriptions of juggling for a hobby culture where people want to share the same knowledge, right? So it starts to become a culture of juggling. So you have this culture of juggling and you have the education of juggling. And both those things require a standard, right? Yeah, yeah. So you feed that into the fame of Rastelli and the 
development of the objects that he used into more functional objects for technique in as shape uh, as in the shape from plate to ring and for visuals from stick to club yeah okay i gotcha so the main question i have after that whole story is how come we stopped developing after that i mean we still have the ball the club and the ring and actually there in a short period of time i mean relatively short let's say 50 60 whatever let's even say 100 years right um you kind of have this huge change you can even just say in a very short way from, you know, this, um, you know, from the gentleman juggling style. Now we have the ball ring and club. You showed that little connection there. Why did it stop? Do you have any idea? Like, why don't we have another thing that replaced the ball, the club and the ring? Yeah, I mean, I can I can make guesses. But sure. of course, I don't know the, the answer. But I think that uh, one guess is that, you know, if you're going to have more shapes, you also have to have... A culture that's you know strives towards novelty and we don't necessarily have that I think that we have a very strong part of juggling culture is still you know athleticism and breaking records and since these three objects you, people kept finding new things with them and they kept uh, breaking the records so in, in some sense we still have an exhaust the potential of these three standardized objects, right? So that could yeah. be the one answer. If that if it's stagnated and it's like, okay, now nobody has broken a single record in, you know, thirty years, and we we didn't really come up with anything new that's interesting. For sure, there would be people who started to explore other things where you could make progress in that sense. So I do think that that's. That's one contributing factor. The other contributing factor is also that the accessibility, you know? Well, that's the thing, yeah. Today, again, you want to be a juggler, you go online, you search Google, you get taken to a juggling store, here's the things you can buy. Exactly. You know, and that's the and that just kind of perpetuates those yeah. <laughs> those objects. Yeah, and also like you get now, if you buy a, ju a modern juggling club, you get an object that has like a shock absorbing handle with cushioned ends so you don't hurt yourself mm -hmm. and you have plenty of videos and books and resources to uh, you know yeah. give you ideas of what to do with this object yeah so yeah. the 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 path to finding a new object is so much harder you know what are you going to do and when you have made that object or have a, someone make it for you then it might be the wrong weight and yeah there's just so many obstacles in the way of of discovery i think yeah you have, the, you have those two paths in front of you like you say here's an object that's very it's already mass produced so it's very cheap it's it's immediately available it's right in front of you there's a million things cool that you can do with it and there's a million things cool that haven't been done with it yeah potentially i mean there's yeah. there is that spirit in the air of our culture of right culture. and if you break a record with an established thing or come up with something new that the there is a culture out there that will appreciate you right. for doing those things right so you can be recognized for it mm. and you can also in terms of being a professional i think there are still you know <laughs> PR opportunities if you break a new record or do something that's novel that has value in the entertainment world you can still position yourself to 
what existed before you. But that's the exact same thing. I mean, that, that's the exact point is that, yeah, if you make a new record with a new object, it's like, oh, okay, kind of a curiosity. But if you make a new record with an existing, op- like a club, if you're going to yeah. juggle 11 clubs, that's quantifiable to previous generations because the previous generation did 10 clubs or whatever, right? Yeah. Whereas like, hey, I came up with the wiffle stick or utami yeah. or whatever you want to make some fictional object. And you're like, I just did, you know, two utamis today. And people are like, I don't know what utami is. And you're like, no, it's the world record. And like, okay, I can't, yeah. I can't relate to that discussion, you know? Yeah, you have to carve out a new place for yourself, both if you want to be part of a culture, but also in terms of a profession, right? Yeah. You have to convince yeah people who's gonna buy and see your show that this is a interesting thing and that's not the easiest whereas now you can say oh there's this new juggler and everybody's gonna have some kind of an idea about what that is yeah no i think i think a lot about i mean this is getting into just the to the culture of, of of juggling and when i started out juggling it was such a thing to do your three ball routine or your three ball tricks like three balls had some sort of badge of honor in terms of we all have three balls we all have the same set of tools and now what are we going to do with those tools to impress each other or to one up each other or, or to riff on each other or whatever. It's, it was a conversation, right? It was yeah. a, a communal conversation we were all having through having these same established props. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I started teaching at circus schools and students just uh, consistently wanted, kept coming and saying, yeah, I want to do something that's new. I want to do something new. I want to do something innovative. I want to do something creative. And I said, you know, one of the easiest observations to make is, well, just don't use the same set of objects everyone else is using. That's just by definition something new. Um, if that's only if that's the only quality you care about, and of course that isn't the only quality they cared about. It's everything we just said about establishing yourself and having a relationship to what's come before and having some sort of value that people can understand. But just this idea of like mixing props, you know, doing a ball trick, one ball and two ring trick. Maybe it's super cool, but I know definitely for a whole generation of jugglers that I come from, there's just something inherent about seeing that trick where you're like, oh, it's super cool, two rings and a ball, but yeah, it's, you know, a three ball trick is cooler. There's mm. some, right, there's some cachet, there's some, you know, respect you get for having that purity of the, the iconic. The, yeah, you're this, con- contributing to the canon in some sense. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Well, so the other big question I had, um, you know, because again, the, the one question that sticks out on my mind after hearing this whole story from you is, again, um, which, which we answered a little bit now, but hey, how come this development and this churning over of props and ideas hasn't kind of continued in the same way as it did in your story there, right? Um, to move on from the ball ring and club, like why did we not move on? And you've, you've answered that, you know, or taken a guess at that in a few different ways. But the other big question for me is, if you, if you kind of take your story and work backwards from it, and you say, okay, you have the rolled up ball of gloves, you have the plate and you have the stick as some sort of proto uh, version or a precursor to the ball, the ring and the club. What other proto versions of things potentially were there then that didn't evolve mm. into past their precursor stage, right? Like, I mean, we can also draw a line from umbrellas and stuff to clubs, but it just makes me think of like, yeah, you know, yeah. At, at the time when they were doing rolled up balls of glove, it wasn't like, hmm this is going to turn into, you know, uh, ball juggling as we know it today. 
right? Right. No, but th- no, that's a that's an interesting question. I just want to um, throw it in there. I recalled now the name of the passing troop that oh, I okay. couldn't remember. It's the Murdoch brothers. Oh yeah, the Murdoch brothers. Right. The- right. But back to your question now. Like, is there a proto, or is there some object in the past that we could potentially see as a proto object? that could be developed into a more purified form, let's say. And I think one fun example to bring up is, I guess they called them cup sticks, Mm -hmm. which is basically like a handle and then a cup at the top of the handle so you could catch a ball there. And that was a very old object. And that is something that you've now worked on quite recently. So you could say that that some version of that proto to new is still happening right now mm. with the cuphead maybe that's uh, that's coming out so sure so, so yeah you could perhaps there could be a reference like that but yeah it would be fun to be able to make an observation about some old object that hasn't yeah that could have that potential but it hasn't been done um well i, I mean yeah. i mean there's such a <laughs> fundamental um it's just been beaten into me for my whole, I've, I've juggled too long and lived in this reality too long to think anything otherwise, but it's like, okay, the ball is the point, the club is the, uh, the line, and then the, the ring is the circle. So we have this kind of geometrical progression and it's kind of hard to think like in, in the, in the fundamentals of geometry, we're not, you know, there's not like millions of variations we're missing there. You have the one dimensional, two dimensional kind of three dimensional in some way, this, uh, whatever, I don't yeah. want to get into that, but you see what I mean. Oh yeah. And so, you know, you have your, your five or whatever, five or six basic shapes of the universe from Plato and your platonic solids. And like, it's not really that we're missing 20 of those and we forgot about them. Right. Um, but just this idea of like, that was this idea I had however many years ago about the fourth shape. Um, this, it was, it wasn't an actual shape. It was just a question, Hey, what could be that fourth shape that we all embrace universally in the same way that we have this lineage of the other the ball the ring and the club is there a fourth shape what could that be is something to think about this this question i was just asking which relates exactly to the mm-hmm. hey is there a proto version of xyz that we missed if the proto version of the ball ring and club evolved like this and yeah i mean if you think about it from the perspective of axis a ball it doesn't matter how it rotates in terms of the axis a ring has one axis that doesn't matter like if it ro- if it rotates along the mm-hmm. direction of, of, of the ring it, it doesn't matter but in the other direction like the pancake direction let's call it for juggling lingo that matters you have to pay attention to that right. and a club has two axes that it that it pays attention to so you have the rotation but you could also have like the helicopter type movement which Mm. is another axis but it does not pay attention to the rotating axis so you could imagine uh, an object like a tennis uh, racket for example Mm -hmm. it actually does pay attention to that axis as well potentially yeah yeah Yeah. exactly so 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 that that's one way of looking at it but in terms of like the fourth shape yeah i mean it's funny because we 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 i think we tried really hard to come up with that what what a fourth standard could be and what is that quality of a fourth object that would make it a standard yeah and i think a lot of the attempts we made um were mostly also just combinations of the other three (laughs) the first three right i mean and i was just thinking now i mean one prop that's really gained popularity in recent years has been this uh, 
I don't know the name of it besides poi, but is it a, the one with the, the knob on the end and you have the different uh, strengths of the string in terms of stiffness and... Um, I mean, you, is it contact poi or I don't know what you call uh, yeah, it. What is, is it just a poi? I, I don't know. But that you can do toss juggling with it. It's a hybrid of a ball and a club. Yeah. Right? You can say, oh, that's a, that could potentially at this point be... I mean, one very easy test you can make for this is you go to, a, again, a festival, a juggling festival. Yeah. You go to EJC and you just look around the gym or whatever. You yeah. go, what do people have in their hands, right? There's balls, there's clubs, there's rings. And a lot of times now you have hoops and you have these poi yeah um but even then you can say well yeah the poi is a cross between the ball and the club the hoop is like a ring etc i don't know i don't really see the the new yeah maybe x factor if i mean what you're getting into now the territory is is how do we how do we claim that now a fourth object has been established? Sure. And you could say that that's based on observation in the culture. Like, let's say, take the EJC gym as the lab, you know? Yeah. You look into the EJC gym and you just statistically look at right. what objects are, are in use. And you see, okay, it's balls, clubs, and rings. There's Diablos. Yeah, maybe we already have Diablos. Yeah, maybe shit. we have a Diablo uh, there, but... Uh, and also, like, are we talking toss juggling? Are we talking... Exactly, yeah. yeah. There's many ways to kind of compartmentalize this conversation, I think. But totally. in, ter in terms of the poi, uh, I just want to mention that I don't know the origin of poi, really. I guess it comes from the hunting object bolas, maybe. Okay. Uh, but anyways, I don't know how that f that's a gap in my knowledge, how that found its way into becoming a juggling object but i do know who invented the yeah i don't know what to call it but the the, the ball that has a string to a club knob uh -huh. that specific object was invented by a, a guy called ronan mclaughlin oh yeah yeah of course yeah so what you're the but the addition that you're starting to point out now is to treat that string with some kind of something or you just take a stiff string i don't know how they do it i yeah. don't have those objects myself but either you choose a string that's just stiffer or you treat that sting that string somehow so you get a stiffer s string and then you you start to have an object that that behaves perhaps in a way that's preferable uh, mm. to a sloppy uh, flimsy thing i mean just to tie up this ball ring and club uh trajectory do you see any sort of end in sight do you, do you, do you, or do you, you think for the foreseeable, as far as you can imagine, foreseeable future, we got the ball ring and club, it's going to be the base? Yeah, it's, it's hard to see an end to that. Um, I think that the, in order for there to be a juggling culture, that, that whole concept relies on that there's objects and techniques that we share. So if those objects are going to slowly become substituted i don't know i think that's going to take a long time i don't it, especially like the ball people ever going to lose interest in balls <laughs> right that's hard to imagine i mean you could say that plates fizzled out yeah i was just going to say i mean there could have been a fourth shape that has already been passed right i mean was there another thing i mean not that was as, i guess there wasn't as ubiquitous as the ball club and the ring but was there a super popular I mean, plates and discs, they had a bigger place in juggling culture than what they currently have. I mean, there's a few jugglers who use discs or plates today, but very few. But I'm thinking like, 
Yeah, I'll ask you, like, okay, IJA convention in the 80s, say early 90s. Yeah. Did you see, I mean, I remember Dan Holzman had a routine with discs yep. one year. Totally. Albert Lucas was still working on uh, uh, discs. Yeah. Uh, so there are examples like that. But gym wise, like, if you recall, try to recall the gym IJA 1989. Yeah, easy. Was there plates or discs? No. Okay. No, 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 no. It was balls, rings, clubs, double sticks, cigar box, shaker, shaker cups. There you go. Hats? Yeah. Because mm. that I think you still see, like in EJC, you will see hat jugglers. I think you see more hat jugglers today than when I started. Right. Just to say. Yeah. So maybe one person with a hat. But again, it comes down to that standardization of the prop. Yeah. And I think juggling hats are more commercially available now than when I started, just to say my access to them. You could go buy a hat, but there was a whole treatment you had to do. It was stiffen up the brim and, mm. you know, whatever else. I remember, I remember doing that. I bought mm. a felt top hat and then I had to paint it with a glue substance to make it stiffer so you could try to do the Chris Cremo head bounces and stuff, you know. Yeah. Um, and I'm not saying you can go buy that today, but I think anyway, there is some, you know, Niels Pohl came with the, yeah. the those hats, those derbies and things like that. No, I, I, I mean, I really, really remember this, those six props. It was the six props, balls, clubs, rings. Devil sticks, cigar box, shaker cups. Mm. And yeah, somebody would have a hat. It was, but the hat was in the category of like roll a bola. No, 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 no. The, okay. the hat was in the category of like roll a bola, uh, hula hoop, and Diablo. Uh, you got your tertiary <laughs> prop sets. You know, you got your main three, you got your secondary three, and then you got your kind of ex almost like auxiliary. I mean, auxiliary devices which they used to have like in the IJ competitions right like auxiliary yes. props yeah they called it you know literally so that was kind of funny um no yeah no Diablo really wasn't the because mm. I mean back when I started which was like 80 you know 85 um it was already around you know 80 88 uh, 89 when the first people were doing two Diablos low the, the first attempts like Jeff Mason was one of the first people um, and then Michael Menez and then trying to figure out how to steer them. I mean, and then that kind of became the explosion of Diablo technique, right? Yeah. From there. So no, when I started already mid eighties, Diablo wasn't really the, into that next category, mm. but now I get excited about peeking into the EJC gym and seeing which props are prominent. But if I'm going to try to make a guess, I would say probably Poi. Yeah. has entered that specific landscape quite significantly. Yeah, I think so. You see a lot of people spending time with it. And again, that's just, you know, that's going to push the, the popularity, the innovation, and like you say, the shared conversation around the technique of that prop. So, um, well, hey, I, I wanted to ask you about one more thing uh, today. So you were talking the other day about, uh, I don't know, non-pattern juggling and future juggling and broken down juggling and you you wanted me to talk to you about chattering so <laughs> go for it right okay so first of all there's there's three concepts that we need to discuss here the first one is uh, that we've dealt with on the podcast before which is broken down juggling you got to remind me I don't, yeah? I don't remember anything so broken down <laughs> juggling is this form is juggling patterns where you have objects held in your hands multiple so you don't have to cat you don't have to throw when there's an incoming object to your hand so if i already have a ball in my hand i can catch another ball in the hand without yes. getting rid of the first one yes oh. yeah so the the pattern that 
we discussed, which was called the future of juggling, is a pattern where you have one ball in your left and two balls in your right. Mm. And then your right hand that had the two balls throws one ball towards your left. The left does not throw the ball. They, it just collects that incoming ball. Okay. And then the right hand throws the its second ball, but just straight up and down. Mm. And then that's repeated from from the left now. So you're gonna go you're gonna go like uh, right right, but the first right throw crosses. Yeah. The second one goes straight up. Yes. And then you repeat on the other side, left left right right. Correct. Okay. Yeah. And you that's your name, the future of juggling. No, <laughs> the name comes from uh, from uh, the French school in Knack, where they were having juggling workshops, or their juggling teacher Tim. Tim Roberts. Tim Roberts. Yeah. And I believe the students are Jörg Müller and maybe Thierry André. No, or Didier André. Didier André. <laughs> yeah. One of the Andres. One of the Andres. And, uh, <laughs> and they discovered this pattern. And they th- supposedly, like this is word around the campfire, they thought that, wow, this pattern is going to revolutionize juggling. And this is all you know, this is the direction that juggling is going to go in. And there's so much we can do with this pattern. And why? Because I guess it's just easier to start messing around with those throws as like body throws or manipulations. Yeah, you got more time in between. You're not forced on a certain tempo, like a cascade. Right. You got that ball coming down. You don't have any time to think. You're just like, I got to throw the next ball. Yeah. But here you throw that first right hand throw crossing. You can stop. Yeah. before you do the next right hand throw. Yeah. You could throw behind the back, you could turn your body, you could twist, you could... Yeah. Yeah, yeah it opens up to body movement, it opens up uh, for the entire spectrum of rhythm becomes available because right. you're not forced. You're you not can ba- choose your own timing. There you go, yeah. yeah. So broken down juggling really opens up for a whole other uh, type of vi- visual expressions in terms of rhythm, in terms of movement, in terms of manipulation, right? Because if you're if you're totally bound to uh, this this exchange that you have in a three ball cascade, let's say you you you're constantly under pressure to to get rid of that object because there's an incoming one. Mm. But in broken down juggling, that pressure is gone, and uh, yeah. and you can choose the rhythm yourself. Okay. Yeah, so there was that. But then the other concept, which uh, which I called non-pattern juggling. So you could say, for an example, you're juggling a three-ball box, and now you want to go into uh, Rubenstein's Revenge. So as a transition, maybe you throw a ball behind your neck, and then you, you know, you cross your arm around, and then you're into Rubenstein's Revenge. Okay. But maybe you you keep adding a couple of throws to that transition, right? You throw behind your neck, and then you throw another ball kind of behind your under your leg, and you catch that. But there's already a ball in your hand, so you're in broken down, and you can you continue building a sequence out of these kind of uh, smaller components, smaller components that never become a, repeated into a pattern, right? It just adds up to a whole whole effect or something yeah, yeah yeah you just keep adding new throws and new manipulations that don't have a previous history in the sequence mm. or at least they might you might use the same type of throw but 
there's no there's no recognizable structure right like you have in you know let's say you do uh, uh yeah rubenstein's revenge you know that every yeah. you know whatever throw is going to be a swirl, swirl and yeah <laughs> right yeah so you don't have that so that uh, i call that non-pattern juggling and we see that a lot today like when Absolutely. juggling when jugglers uh, um, do sequences right yeah a lot of it is just like it's these conceptually different throws they don't they don't refer to a previous history in the in the sequence it's just new information yeah a lot of the a lot of what you see now in the sequences is like you'll do one maybe two throws like with an exchange but that second throw will end with like a crazy under the leg catch where your leg goes super high and then you just hold the balls and maybe you roll on the floor and then you stand up and do a multiplex and then catch the one behind your back and then you Right, like so, exactly. So, like the the kind of the permission to start and stop juggling is is just free. Like you, right? There's no expectation of like, hey, wait a second, this person should be throwing the balls more regularly. Or yeah, because he was... did that three throws ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> no, you're you're you get rid of that. So 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 I just thought it was fun that there's those two concepts. You have broken down juggling and you have non-pattern juggling. Well, maybe I should say three concepts because you have then the standard repeating pattern pattern juggling also so those three kind of concepts i thought just that was an interesting distinguishment but then there was the one time that i think we were watching something (laughs) a video of a show yeah and there was jugglers doing stuff I, i believe it was a group of jugglers doing juggling and you said that that juggling that we're watching now is chatter. It doesn't matter what they do or yeah, something like that. Totally. So and that that was very interesting to me because I could see what you meant mm. meant in that moment. So, yeah. so can you explain to me a little bit about this juggling chatter? What yeah. is that? Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna do that in a second. First, I have to. <laughs> I want to say something about the the non-pattern and the pattern stuff and the sequencing just to kind of before I forget. Um, so now I know I, I know what you're talking. I know what you're saying now about non-pattern juggling. Um, it's kind of a version of broken down juggling, right? It's related. Well, that's that's what's fun because non-pattern juggling can take both broken down juggling and uh, trigger juggling or exchange juggling yes. or whatever you want to call sure. it when you have that pressure. Right. You can do that, but you just do new types of throws every time, right? So one funny thing I've noticed uh, recently is that for me personally. Uh, I can kind of make a sequence that's non-pattern juggling. I kind of understand the mechanics of how I do that in my world. Uh, But then, yeah, a lot of the new juggling I've been making lately are patterns. And so I've been really stuck lately uh, because when I do a non-pattern sequence, that's fine. I'm not so interested in it anymore. Obviously, like I just said, I spend a lot of my time making patterns instead of making these non-pattern sequences. Um, But then it's really they're, they're, it, it's kind of a difficult thing I haven't fixed yet. It's a challenge where it's like, okay, I have a non-pattern sequence, but then I want to put a pattern in. <laughs> and it feels weird because you do this thing. It's always new information, new information, one new throw, one new throw, new concept, new concept, new concept. And then all of a sudden I stand in one spot for 30 seconds and run you know six or eight sides of this bigger pattern. And you're like, hey, that's not what I was doing. That's not what I was doing before. So for me inside, it feels weird. But conversely, on the other side, it's like, okay, hey, wait a second. Let's just make a sequence of patterns. And that's also hard to do somehow. It feels also weird. 
I don't have a lot of maybe experience or I've forgotten how to do that. Maybe I did that when I was eight years old and I haven't done it since then. But you know, you run a pattern for eight sides and then you just do another pattern for eight sides and another pattern for six sides. Oh, maybe a little bit longer. The next one I'll do 10 different repetitions of this pattern. And somehow that feels more like a laundry list of just like going down. You have this laundry list of, hey, I found these 10 patterns. Now I will show them to you. And it's very dry, right? Yeah. It doesn't feel like it goes on such a journey somehow. And I haven't really discovered the technique yet, uh, at least in this day and age of what I'm working on, of how to combine the non-pattern juggling with the pattern juggling. It's like... Yeah, I actually thought that there was a quite interesting artistic uh, aspect of WJF that has that uh, that is related to that. And that is that WJF, from my how I saw it was that their solution for what you're talking about now was that the transition is the pirouette. Hmm. So you're doing the one pattern, I'm doing six, four, five, mm. and then I do the five up, and then when the five up comes right. down, I'm in seven, four, four. Uh. And that, that, that gave points somehow. Sure, it was connection points. Yeah, there was connection points. So I you thought have, that was- You don't have set up throws in between. Right, I thought that was a quite interesting artistic formula, you know? Yeah. You could say it's almost like you have a pop song, right? You have the bridge, you have the chorus, you have the whatever, like I don't know those words, but you have that standard, right? And same thing here. If but, you look at it from the perspective of composition, you have the trick, you have the pirouette, and then you have the trick. No, that's funny. And again, maybe I'm using these words wrong, but like connection points or whatever inside the WGF style, which means you don't have these extra setup throws. So, you know, if you do a five ball, if you do a five ball, I was going to say pirouette, but we should say 360 now because we're talking WGF. So we do a five ball 360, you know, if you're gonna do an, uh, a, uh, another five ball 360 immediately afterwards, you either have to do one extra setup throw, so you're back on your preferred hand. Yeah, deduction point. <laughs> or you just go straight into throwing those five balls up again with your non-dominant hand or whatever, right? Like it's it's an odd, it's a weird thing yeah. you don't normally do. And there was that whole video with Anthony Gatto on YouTube doing, you know, no setup throws and in between. But this, this idea of setup throws, that's exactly what I was talking about in terms of making non-pattern juggling sequence, which I understand very well and I've done too much of probably in my life, and then trying to, make a, um, trying to put a pattern inside of that or just making a sequence of pattern after pattern after pattern. Because normally, let's say you're going to go from one pattern to another, you do need a setup throw of some sort or two, right? You can't go straight in from this pattern into the next pattern. It doesn't work. You, you know, in sight swaps, they have the excited state patterns where you need a couple of setup throws to get into the new state, the new ground state or whatever, right? So the thing is, the problem I have then as, as thinking about, you know, watching the sequence of pattern to pattern to pattern, if you're going to have these setup throws in between, they're not really throws I want to do, or I don't want you to see, right? Like, I don't care about them. Mm. It's, it's kind of weird. Like, I just want you to see this pattern. And if it was a video, if I was making a video for YouTube, I would just cut to the next pattern. But here in real life on stage, if I'm doing a show, how do you do that? And I've thought about that a lot for about 10 years now. How can you make juggling live on stage in the way you would edit a YouTube video? So you only show the audience the things you want them to see and you can kind of leave out all the busy work in between. That's kind of, um, yeah, kind you of. You don't want to collect? Yeah, I could, but again, uh, you also want to make something cohesive that feels like it's going somewhere with some momentum. And if you collect in between, it, it really punctuates this feeling of like laundry list of that's just like, here's 10 things I'm going to show you in a row. And there's, mm -hmm. it's really hard to make it cohesive. Anyway, it's a, maybe mm -hmm. that's a longer discussion, but 
I think it's a perfect segue into chattering or what is chatter because this idea of a setup throw or a transitional throw and that being a throw that you don't necessarily want to be there. Like again, I, I like to imagine it if you're if you're shooting if if you're you're gonna show some you're gonna show some juggling to someone and then you do it live, okay, I have to have this setup throw, this transition throw, I have to collect and then start again or whatever. Or even just I have to collect and add another ball or put down another ball, right? There's just these logistical problems you have to encounter on a live setting. But I also, I often think if this was a YouTube video, would I leave that work, that busy work in? Would I leave those little moments in? And like, no, I would not. I would I'd edit the video. I would jump from this pattern to the next because on video you can do that, right? So it makes me think, what's my relationship to those little moments? And that goes directly into what is chattering and chatter, okay? So, because what it means is, it's about these little techniques of what's the function of them and what's your relationship to them. What's, what's necessary for the moment is what chattering is really about, but we're gonna, we're gonna get there. So the word chattering, I think it comes from Eric Langekel and maybe I'm misremembering it, but it doesn't really matter, does it? Like now I think that's the story. So <laughs> that's the story I tell, that's my reality. Um, and uh, no, but I, I, I know I heard it from Eric and uh, basically Eric Langekel and I, we were working on this show, How to Welcome the Aliens. And um, at some point in rehearsal, we, we needed a moment of juggling to, we, we just needed some raw material to work with inside the framework of, the, of whatever staging concept or overarching artistic concept we were working with, right? Let's just, let's just take a random example for now. It wasn't this, but we can say it was something like this. Let's say I had balls filled with confetti so, and, there, and there were holes in the ball. So when I juggle the ball, the confetti flies out a little bit, right, as I juggle. And then you have those balls and you're in rehearsal and you want to see how those balls work. You want to test the function of those balls. Like, are the holes big enough? Is the confetti small enough? Is it visible? Is it the right color of confetti? How do the stage lights hit it? Whatever, right? So in that moment of testing out the balls, what do you do? What juggling do you do? And then I think at one point, you know, it was something like this. And I sat down and I was like, well, give me 20 minutes. I'll choreograph a a, a three ball sequence so I can try the, 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 the confetti balls. And I would, and when I would compose that sequence, I was thinking, you know, I would, just, I would imagine how the confetti might move. So I would do some attempts to work with the property of the ball. And Eric's like, no, 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 just do some chattering. Just do some chattering, just do it. And what he meant, I'm like, I don't know what that means. He means just do some juggling, that the juggling itself is meaningless in terms of the specificity of the technique. I just wanna see how the ball looks in the air, right? Like, in fact, I could have just taken one ball and just thrown it up and down, straight up and down. I didn't have to design a whole sequence to figure out how this ball works. Mm. And it was just a little bit about, so this idea of chattering is where do you place, where do you place the importance on what you're doing? Is it, is it in the details of exactly how many throws you do before you go to the next thing? Is it in the details of is your right arm crossed over your left arm or your left arm over your right arm? Is it in that minute details? Is it down to the level of like, are your fingers, like, are you catching only with the tips of your fingers? You, you can do that. But there's also the overarching thing of like, no, I just wanna see how the pulse work in the air. <laughs> like we're in rehearsal, for example, and I just wanna move through this moment. And that's not where the focus is right now. The focus is on a larger picture. We're trying to build confetti balls that work well, right? So he said, just do some chattering. And I said, oh, wow, I've never heard that word before. Um, Do you think, why couldn't he just say, just improvise a little bit? 
No, because he, he has identified chattering as far as I, again, in my mind, uh, from what I understand, he has identified chattering as a, as a function that you use in, in terms of composing sequences, we can say for performances. It's a really specific thing. So I try to break it down, uh, which is, you know, so first of all, chattering means maybe just like, like in talking, like if me and you are talking, uh, we're here, we're here trying to have a conversation mm. <laughs> between us right now. And we hear someone talking in the distance mm. to someone else. And you don't hear what they're saying. You just hear that there's word. You just hear that they're talking and you hear, so you kind of hear like, and you're just kind of like, Hey, cut out the chattering. We're trying to have a, me and Eric are trying to have a discussion here. Right. And so it means that it is indistinct. The, 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 the talking of chattering is indistinct. It's just that it's there. It's, a, it's almost like a placeholder, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. That's something you can work with. And so I can give um, a really clear example. So, so now since, since, he, since he has pointed out this idea of chattering, I kind of see it a lot. I see it mostly intention, uh, sorry, unintentionally <laughs> or intentionally. Um, and I try to use, I try to use chattering Oh, I can think, I thought of another good example with you, actually. Um, let's do that example first with me and you. Um, we had, we were making our new show. We were at the time, the new show Apparat was in 2020 or something, right? And my dad had made us this string shooter machine. So it's this machine with motors that has two wheels that shoots out a loop of string. That's, I don't know, like it's a, it's a big loop. It's like 10 or 12 feet across and it's a big loop of string. It goes to these two motor wheels and wheels go so fast that it shoots the string into the air and it creates a circle that kind of levitates, yeah. right? Two meter diameter. Yeah. It kind of hovers in the air. Yeah. <clears throat> and, and, um, and so we were, we had that in rehearsal. We got to make this show. And when we made our show, we did not have a lot of time to mess around. It was like, Hey, we got three weeks or whatever. We got to, we got to start the show. We got to start the creation now. And three weeks, from, three weeks from now, we have to have a finished show. So at one point towards the end of the process, we got to the string shooter machine and we were going to use it at the end of the show. And we had this idea. We would turn on the string shooter. We had this loop of string and we would pass clubs through it. That was going to be the last trick of the show. And then you no. then I said, I said, oh, okay, that's cool. But you know, before we pass clubs, if we just turn on the machine and we pass clubs, it feels a little bit short as a moment in the show. It has, it should have a little bit more weight, a little bit longer rhythm. So we should kind of do like maybe one or two things with the string shooter if we can, before we pass the clubs to kind of build up the tension, right? To introduce this object so that when we pass clubs through it, it's a little bit more established, right? It's a little bit cooler or clearer or whatever you want to say. And then you were like, oh yeah, great. And then you started to mess around with the string shooter touching the string and manipulating the loop in different ways with your hands. And it was very cool. And we were both like, Whoa, that's, that's, that's awesome. Okay. Perfect. And you had kind of immediately with a little bit of effort. I mean, we didn't spend days on it with a little bit of effort. You had found a couple of images that, um, introduced the, introduced the, the, the machine and kind of established it to the audience, how it behaves. And I was like, perfect. Now we're going to pass the clubs. And you were just there in rehearsal, still poking at the loop and like twisting it around and playing. I'm like, no, 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 dude, we just need some chattering with this machine, right? We're not doing a, we're not doing a whole investigation of a string shooter. That's not what the scene is. The scene is the finale of the show. We just want to pass the clubs because we had the, we'd used the clubs earlier in the show, right? We just wanted to bring them back. 
we wanted to do kind of a little fun image at the end so the audience could understand it was like a finale trick. And in that moment, you just kept poking at the technique and like making more and more cool things. And I was like, hey man, that's not what we're doing here. We got to keep your eye on the prize. There's a bigger picture that we're working on here. And yeah, we should totally save that string shooter material for another show, right? Where we do a half hour of string shooters, which we talked about having like 20 different ones and different sizes and lengths of string and whatever. But what we needed was just a little bit of chattering just to establish the visual of that machine before we could pass clubs through it so people could understand the mechanics of what was happening and mm-hmm. what, what, the, what the situation was, what the, what the trick, what the finale trick actually turned out to be. So that's one chattering moment between us. But the other one I really remember since it was right after Eric had, uh, Langekel had said that to me in rehearsal. And he said, oh yeah, but just do some chattering with the, with the confetti balls or whatever it was, right? And then the next, uh, maybe the next week or something, I saw a juggling show uh, in France and it was with four performers. And uh, at, the, at the very beginning of the show, you got a group of, uh, of four, it was, it was four guys and they were on, on stage and they each had a different costume on. And I could tell that the format of the opening of the show was each of the performers should go to the front of the stage and in one way introduce themselves through doing some action, right? So you're kind of establishing who the characters are, I guess. So there was like the tall guy who was funny, who came to the front of the stage and tripped or whatever, you see where I'm going with this. And then, so, not every person in the show was a juggler. There was only one, I would say, juggler who was identified from the beginning as a juggler. And the three other, the three other guys, they had different identities. Like there was the clown, there was the whoever, there was the whatever, and then there was the juggler. So then I just remember in this opening montage of you know introducing yourself to the audience, the juggler comes to the front of the stage, he's got three balls, and he proceeds to attempt, <laughs> which is the key, he attempts to do his, I guess, his craziest blind behind the head, straight arm up in the air catch while you floop around your feet and twist and turn, whatever, right? Like, and of course he missed because like the pressure is you're not warmed up. It's the top of the show. The music starts, the lights come on, and then you just got to go up and nail your hardest trick that you can do. And of course you're going to mess it up. You're not warmed up. You're not comfortable on stage. The lights are in your eyes. You're not acclimated to the lights. And I could just, so I'm making all this up from here on out. That's, that's what I observed. And then I made up a little story in my head about what I saw, which was, you could just see these people were in rehearsal and they're just like, Hey, how should we start the show? And someone's like, Oh, but we could all like introduce ourselves to the audience. And then, you know, oh, how are we going to do that? Well, we can just go up and do a little moment of who we are and what we do, I guess, is what I saw. And then you could just see in rehearsal the juggler going to the front of the stage and potentially thinking, oh, man, here's my moment to really establish that that my juggling is like this. So I've got to do my best trick. Mm. And what and what I would say is, no, that's not the that's not the task of the moment. The task of the moment is to do some chattering in the best of ways mm-hmm. to just go do some chattering. Just say, hey, I'm the person with the objects with these balls. I throw them around. I do the juggling thing that, you know, is juggling um, and then move on. Right. And then later on in the show, you can start to let people dive deeper into the work. Mm-hmm. But in that moment, nobody knew who that person was yet. We didn't know on what level they were juggling. So the only result I saw was if some person came to the front of the stage and screwed up and not in a good way, <laughs> like 
Um, so I think ch chattering definitely has, um, I mean, it, is, it, it just has such a function of the theatricality of what you're doing to the point where chattering, it points to me this idea that at least in a performance, the specific techniques you use, they have a certain function and the audience needs to have access to that level of what of the same level you're working on in that moment right you have to be on the same page of that that level and another another kind of moment or, or example of this could be where it's like um you do a routine well we can i don't have to make a fictional one let's just take our show that we do together me and you we kind of have this working style in our show with our market that we play in sweden for this certain for these, we do a lot of school shows for kids, right? And over the years, we've come up with some sort of, I wouldn't say formula, but definitely some sort of aesthetic and style that we work in that's kind of a trademark of our company and how me and you know to function in the performances with these kids. And that style, you can say a few things about it. One thing is that we tend to do, we'll take a concept and we'll do three or four, maybe five images at the most with that concept and then we'll move to a new concept. Right. So they're kind of these little discrete moments that, yeah, you kind of you introduce this new idea, you show it three or four different ways, but then you move on to the next the next new idea. So, for example, in our show, if we would do, OK, here's a new concept, three or four different ways. Here's another one, three or four different ways. Here's another one. Here's 30 ways. You go, whoa, wait a second. It doesn't work. Right. Like we cut we cut some stuff recently from the show because it was exactly what I just said. Um, the audience, we build an expectation with the audience that you're going to pay attention down to this level of detail and anything beyond that, well, the audience doesn't have patience for it. And it's our own fault because that's how we introduce the rhythm of the show. Mm. And so in this way, it's like um, we're asking the audience to view the work on a more zoomed out perspective in terms of, oh, what's that new thing that they, the string shooter, oh, what is that thing? Mm -hmm. Oh, it's a machine. Oh, it, it turns the string, it makes a loop. Oh, you can pull the loop and it will bounce back into its original shape. Okay, cool. But we're not asking them to focus down to the level of detail of, for the next 20 minutes, we will poke this string rhythmically and you will start to care about the cadence of the waves as and the amplitude of the waves. Like we don't, we don't ask them to drill down to that, right? And it's the same thing I think a lot about performing in general where you have, and we've talked about this before maybe, but it's like you have your three ball head roll, head roll routine, which is, which is completely genius. Uh, it's, a great, it's a great piece. And there's something about putting a ball on the head uh, as a head roll, which is very concrete for an audience to watch, right? Like people can relate to that. Oh, he's got it on his ear, or whatever they wanna say it is, right? They can relate to that immediately. But then you say, okay, it's a five minute, maybe it's a five minute long piece sometimes. And the only thing that, they're, that they can get into in the piece is just variations of how you put the balls on your ears, right? It's a variation of that same concept. You're not all of a sudden gonna do back crosses or some contact juggling or bunch of pirouettes or whatever. You're, you just do head rolls for five minutes. And if the audience is in a certain mood, it's amazing. They can dive into the world of head rolls and go, oh my God, you can put it like that. And he put it like this and he did it another way. But you're still doing the same thing. Whereas in, in other occasions when you do that type of juggling or when I do that type of routine, um, where it's just variations on, on a certain theme, uh, they can just grow bored and you know get tired and not engage because they're not looking at that level of curiosity at the work. Uh, and so that's why I think chattering 
sometimes really serves a good function in terms of performing where it's just like, hey, you just got to do some some juggling. And for example, if we kind of round back to the to the four person juggling show that I saw, um, especially if, if it's your introduction to the audience, just nail just nail your trick. <laughs> like like nobody cares what the trick actually is. They just don't want to they just don't want to see a mistake in that moment. They want to see something that's yeah, cohesive that they can understand and comprehend what's that what's that moment so they can just move through it and get into the show and maybe maybe then later on you can establish some sort of moment where you can do your crazy behind the head trick and maybe even you can establish some sort of mood or expectation where you can try that trick a hundred times and miss it and they still love you right like but you're not there yet at the top of the show so that's what i that's what i think chattering is do you think it's possible to chatter as a solo artist in a solo situation because that's something that I thought of because I when when you said that thing about chatter and you explained it a little bit to me what the concept was I felt like I could immediately recognize it in a lot of shows that I've seen even things I've done myself I could be like oh yeah that was chattering it doesn't matter like I thought that I had created juggling and the variation of that juggling mattered but I realized that it doesn't matter what the specifics of the variation was. I might as well have done any any variations would have given the same result in that situation, right? And <clears throat> and most of these instances where I can recognize chatter is in these like kind of group scenes or transitions in larger shows. But then I was just thinking about it in terms of a solo act. Is it possible to chatter there? Totally. Yeah, it's the same. It serves the same function in terms of the overall rhythm of what you're trying to do, right? And 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 also the overall kind of dynamic you've created with the with the audience of get of, of again how minute of details are you asking them to pay attention to, and how have you introduced that as a as a expectation in your show? Mm. So if you have like some crazy show where it's just like you come out and you do something with one prop and you change the prop and you do a big trick and another big trick and another prop and another prop. And then all of a sudden you take, you know, three balls and you start doing, you know, crossed arm variations for six minutes. It's mm. you're on a different level all of a sudden. Right. Yeah. So you kind of you, you, you it's more I don't know for me using this idea of chatter, you, you can definitely do it as a solo performer. It's just more points to this idea of where being aware of where you're at on that spectrum of how you know of the details that the audience is going to notice so how do you how do you think what sets up an audience to pay attention to detail in the finest sense in terms of ju watching juggling well we can take uh just a literal lit like a literal example we can talk about emil Dahl's show holy that's a really good example and it's and I can talk. I will. I will talk very clearly about what that show is. But basically, to conceptualize what he's doing is he's just being very clear in communicating with the audience uh, what he's going to do, and he does that through what he's wearing, what the stage light looks like, what the set design looks like, what his actions look like, and so to speak very clearly about that. Um, Emil does a does a show. It's around forty five minutes long, I think where he balances up to nine rings in different configurations on his head. And the main technique of the show is balancing a ring on your head. And it's basically 45 minutes of variations of balancing rings on your head. So if you wanna enjoy the show, appreciate the show, get into the show, be moved by the show, be touched by the show, experience the show in a meaningful way, 
you you have to dive into those variations. You have to start to care mm. about how is he balancing the ring on his head and what shape, because mm. he's just going to balance another ring on his head. And if you just go, okay, here's the show I'm watching. He balanced a ring on his head. Hmm, what's he going to do next? And then he balances a ring on his head, but maybe he turned it 90 degrees. And you go, oh, but he's, he's still just balancing a ring on his head. Okay, what's he going to do next? And then he balances it in a different way, in a different way, in a different way. Then you're not on that level of, of you know, getting into the work. But I can say, uh, I think he does a couple things for me, at least to, to try to be sympathetic to the audience. So, you know, first of all, um, the show is called Holy, and he definitely curates some sort of ceremonial mm. concentration or depth around the work. So the set design is just a, a white square on the floor, like white tape in a square, like a couple meters big. And then he has a very minimalist uh, wooden stand, super minimalistic, almost to like bare bones, like almost if it was anything less, it would fall over. There's no fancy decorations. There's no nothing. It's very minimal. He has a he has a container of water on top of that transparent glass container. And he comes out and he's very solemn. He's very like one cool thing we, we asked him, remember, it was because we went to sit in the front row of the show and we were like, oh, is he going to be a bit confronted that his friends are in the front row of the show and he'd be surprised to see us. Uh, and he said, oh, no, I didn't see you there. I the first time I look at the audience is after 30 minutes. So he he cultivates like a very contemplative atmosphere of himself. He's not coming out and being showy. He's not doing sudden movements or very fast movements, right? Everything's very slow and considered like a meditation. So like an introspective kind of atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And for me, introspection really means that you start to notice minute details and you start to concentrate more. He's very concentrated. He doesn't look out until after 30 minutes of being on stage because he's so concentrated on what he's doing. And whether you are moved by the show or like the show or hate the show, it doesn't matter. I think you can at least agree that he's very committed to what he's doing. So at the very least, he's giving his full attention to the variations of the balances, right? On that very microscopic level. And there's another, there's another, there's another. Um, yeah, I guess you're onto something there. Like he's, he's giving his full attention to the details. And you could say that about a lot of other aspects, not people that's involved in the show. Like is the light giving its full attention to the details is the music giving its full attention to the details is the structure of the performance giving its fullest attention to the details but even better man even better than all of that is the technique itself because the cool thing about the technique of him balancing the rings on his head and this is going to be hard to describe without seeing it is you know he'll balance it he'll balance a structure of rings on his head and he'll kind of he'll kind of tick or shift his head minutely because he needs to balance to be in the right spot, yeah. you, right? You know, you see, you've seen it. You know what I'm talking about. These micro corrections of the technique itself are are in are detailed, inherently detailed, right? So that's all pointing towards, hey, I'm presenting something at a certain level of depth here that you're going to pay attention on this level to what I'm doing. He's not coming out and shouting. He's not uh, moving fast. He doesn't have bright colors. I mean, there's no color. It's all black and white and the music is not flashy. The music's not changing a lot. The music is a ambient drone, which shifts very gently over 45 minutes. So it all kind of points towards the same level, I think. At least he attempts to do that. I really appreciate, I mean, I love the show. Like it's amazing to experience. 
um, he's also a good friend of mine. So it's just like amazing to see my friend do, do this crazy, crazy stuff. Uh, but he really has attempted to dedicate like every aspect of the performance into that, into what level he's working on, right? Like it's all the same level of, of concentration maybe. Yeah, I, I fully agree with, with that. Uh, I, um, I have one last question for you regarding chatter and that would be, do you, have you seen now, now that you're conscious of this, uh, this concept, do you think that you recognize chatter in other uh, disciplines? Like, do you see oh, yeah. acrobatics and music? Oh, hold on. Yeah. Puppetry? No. Absolutely. Well, I mean, the easiest one, so I can give the best example is um, I went to see Britney Spears concert in London, like, I don't know, 20, <laughs> whatever, 20 years ago. <laughs> I went with Manu Laud. <laughs> <laughs> and she was uh, she was she was filming she was filming the concert for some sort of like HBO special or something right, and so the 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 consequence of filming the the performance was she had to change costumes for every single song, so she went to have a new outfit for every single song, and I think when you'd see the edit for TV because it wasn't a live broadcast it was going to be edited and shown later on in eight like pay per view or something you would just see her come out and she'd start her new hit song, whatever hit she was gonna do with a new costume on. You don't think twice about it. But in reality, she has to go backstage and change her costume. So what would happen? The band would do, I guess what's in music now, I'm really out of my bounds here, but it's called a vamp. They would vamp. Mm. So the musicians would just vamp, which means she would hit the last note of the song, she'd run to the side of the stage, and as she was gone to, I guess, entertain the people who were there in the stadium, the band would just kind of riff and vamp on kind of the same mood and atmosphere of what the song had been previously. And it doesn't, it wasn't like, oh man, they're gonna play the chorus again. Oh, they're gonna play the bridge again. No, it was still the same mood and texture of the music. It was just extended. Mm. And I would say that's the same thing as chattering. They were just chattering until she came back, right? And it served that function and nobody was like, oh man, the drummer's not doing the cool solo now. We, we, we all were just like in the vibe. You're just mm. kind of bouncing your head along. And you're like, yep, now we're doing, hit me baby one more time. Okay, yeah, we're gonna vamp until whatever other hit she had. <laughs> um, so, I mean, that's a really concrete example, but I think, um, and then I think you can also see, you do definitely see chatter in other, let's say circus disciplines, but mostly it's notable for me in terms of a negative moment where you go, okay, this person has done a big acrobatic movement, they need to rest. And then they try to fill that with some sort of chatter that's that's a little bit meaningless. It's supposed to be meaningless, but it really sticks out as like, oh, you're resting and you're pretending you're not resting. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So I think you do like you do see chattering in that in those cases too. Um, yeah, I don't know chattering. Uh, well, it's a stretch to say, but maybe swinging trapeze or something when you're speeding up, you're taking speed. Mm. That's kind of a bit of a a non moment or something that you that people try to make something of. I don't know. I don't know how much swinging trapeze you watched. I've watched a lot, and people have so many different attempts to make the speeding up of taking speed of swinging trapeze interesting, like more in, quote unquote in air quotes more interesting than it is. And again, it's kind of like you're you're trying you're attempting to make this this moment more than what it is maybe that's also part of chattering like let the let the moment be what it is or something i don't know yeah i, I worked once with a <clears throat> with a straps artist called ugo and i remember he told me about 
how they spoke specifically about that when you said that thing about rest in between you know the more uh, um, physical tricks i think the words he used was that the tricks were the meat and then those that choreography where you that wasn't so physical that was called the mayonnaise okay <laughs> and that's how you would structure your act right because right? Right. you had the meat you had that big trick that was took a lot of strength right but then you had to add you know a little bit of mayonnaise for a while which was you know the the material from the contemporary dance classes where you roll you know over your shoulder on the floor so you did the mayonnaise for a little bit and then you could go back to the meat yeah, yeah, I'm gonna make a sandwich, have some bread, and hold the mayonnaise. <laughs> just, just, I just wanna have a meat sandwich.